So tonight we're beginning with the first of the arousing factors of awakening, the second factor of awakening. And I'd like to um, begin with a story. Um, This is from about the second century BCE, and it's about King Melinda of the Bhatkya and his wise sage, um, Nagasana. And one day, um, Nagasana had come to give him a teaching, as he did on many occasions. And the king said, How many factors of awakening are there? Seven, sir. And by how many of them does one actually awaken? Just one. Investigation of dhammas. Well, why are there seven then? And so he said to the king, Well, if I give you a sword paste in a sheath, but it's not actually taken out in your hand. Can you cut with it if it's still in the sheath? No. Well, just so, the other six factors are needed to unsheath the sword and to wield it. And so the sword is the sword of discriminating wisdom that cuts through confusion, doubt, ignorance and brings clarity and awakening. And when this quality of investigation, the Pali word is Dhamma Vichaya, when it's fully developed, ignorance is abandoned. And so it's a profound antidote to doubt, and it's a wonderful ally to polish this quality and bring it about um, in our practice as we are here. And it grows naturally out of our mindfulness practice. The more we begin to look closely, the more this quality naturally begins to awaken. And it's translated, Dhammavichaya is translated as as discrimination of dhammas, truth-discerning wisdom, um, investigation of states, self-correcting intelligence. So it's a curiosity, a questioning, a reflecting. And in the tradition that I was trained in, the tradition of Ajahn Chah, the forest tradition, that Jack Cornfield and many of our teachers here were trained in, there was an emphasis put on reflection and inquiry, not just on paying attention to breath and sensations, but really inquiring, what is this? What's going on? What is the nature of awareness? So it was a quest for truth, an actual direct experiencing rather than a figuring out. So it's this, this, this what is this, looking more closely. Shada and I were taking a walk this morning after breakfast, and as we were going down towards the gate, past the gate, we started to smell something that smelt really quite wonderful. Again, what is this? So we walk and we see these piles, some of you may have seen them, piles of wood chips and they were steaming um, and the smell was quite amazing. And as we got closer, we got more interested. We started to look more closely and the more closely we looked at all the different components of the piles, the more interested we got and the more vivid they became and the more interest there was and the more energy grew from that, and then delight came. So we could see the factors of awakening unfolding as we were walking along. 
and enjoying that. And it was a direct experience of sensing and feeling, not an intellectual questioning, who put these there, what are they made of? It was that direct experience of looking closely and seeing. So it's also about seeing things as they really are, free from the usual veils that get in the way. So it's actually, the words are um, in Pali are yata bhuta, things as they really are, unmediated by the superimposition of concepts that we tend to layer on things, all our assumptions and beliefs and ideas. So the truth is revealed through this factor of awakening. And we connect more and more fully so that we can experience what's actually happening. And sometimes we can see the projections arising in the mind, about to. I'm about to see this in a certain way. I might see an old friend and I can see a projection in my mind of the last conversation I had with them, the last interaction with them. I'm seeing them in that way, rather than just as they are in this moment. This happens a lot uh, over the holiday time when we see relatives, children and parents. We see them through certain veils, maybe, and not necessarily as they are in this moment. So it's close intimate, exploring. And it's mindfulness alone is that quality that Gil was talking about last night that's an abiding and a recognizing. It's, it's passive, it's just a beingness. There's a little more action, a little more of an active quality to investigation. It's like a flashlight that lights things up. One of the analogies that's used is it's like shining the light in a very dark room so we don't bump into things. And the things that we're trying to avoid bumping into here are the hindrances that obscure of aversion and wanting, confusion, restlessness. So it shows those up so that we don't get caught in them. What is it that I'm actually seeing? the flashlight is shining in the dark and revealing things. So it dispels confusion. And again, even though it's a little more active, quotes, than than mindfulness, it's still not a doing. It's just a looking more closely, a really, really coming in more close and seeing what's the truth here, what's underneath. And what is the truth? What is this truth that's it's illuminating? What is it that we see when we start looking behind the veil of concepts? What is it that we become aware of? One of the things we become aware of is how we're contributing to our own suffering. We start to see how suffering is put together. It shows us the concepts that overlie pain. Um, I, I had to... Um, have a colonoscopy not a couple of weeks ago. Some of you may have had that procedure. And you know that it's not so unpleasant taking this stuff. And I've had to take it 
in the past because of my family history, and I've had unpleasant experiences. So just looking at the glass of liquid that I have to swallow, I can feel my body already pre-thinking everything that's going to happen. I haven't even swallowed a drop of it yet. And there's aversion and nausea and all these things. Nothing has actually happened. And I'm imagining losing weight and this will happen and that will happen. So all these things are getting layered on top of it. And so I stood there this time with the glass and I thought, okay, let it go. Can I be in this moment with how it actually is this time? And actually it wasn't so bad. It was the all the ideas and assumptions I had about it that were creating the suffering. And I'd been going through this for about two weeks beforehand, (laughs) rehearsing how it was going to be. And so that's what we do. And we start to see how it is that we have layers of ideas that create more suffering. Sometimes we're having a painful experience in sitting. And if we can look more closely with this quality of investigation, we can see this just the pure sensation and how the sensations are changing, getting more intense, getting less intense, getting warm or hot or cold or burning, can see the quality of them, getting very close. And as we see them like that, in an open way, they start to transform and change. So investigation is very much a turning towards, not just looking at the sensations or the sounds or the sights, but also the qualities present in the mind. When we look at the qualities present in the mind, we start to see the reactivities that we're adding. Sometimes we can be, um, we can be, have something difficult happen, but because the quality of the mind is already calm, it doesn't bother us so much. You know how when you first come on the retreat, the first day or so, someone may come in late, and you can feel the irritation in the mind that's composed of, this shouldn't be happening, the teacher should make an announcement, um, why did they have to walk so loudly, and all those different comments that are causing the irritation in the mind. Because you haven't settled yet, and you're feeling vulnerable. Later on in the retreat, there may be more calm. Someone may come and go, the same sounds may happen, it doesn't impact you in the same way. And so it's, it's useful investigation looks at the sensations and at the quality of mind that's receiving them. So we see the responses and the impact and we see our projections. The other thing that it shows really clearly, the truth that it begins to see, is how deeply everything is impermanent how all these sensations are arising and passing. All the experiences are just coming and going over and over. This constant motion of intense sensation, feelings, thoughts, everything. And we also see that the aversion to the sensations is arising and passing. The wanting something is arising and passing. This is, I really want something to be different. We can pay attention to the wanting and see how it might get very big for a while and then it disappears. Maybe we have aversion to the wanting. 
if we pay attention to the wanting and we pay attention to the aversion, we see how they separate out and they come and go. They're just, and it's the investigation that brings us close enough to see that. And we also see how we ourselves are the same flow. We're changing and everything is coming and going. You may have had some people um, in the different groups have described how, oh, I had this wonderful sit this morning. My practice was so great and everything's come together. Now I've got it. And then later on, it's terrible. (laughs) Now I've lost it and I'm a terrible meditator and my practice doesn't work and I didn't learn anything. And we see how our identities keep changing. The good meditator, the bad meditator, the grandiose great meditator, the inadequate one. And the investigation is just helping us see how transient those are and how they are not really who we are. And how we hold on to these old identities and we get locked into a sense of self. And the more closely we look, the more we can question, is this really true? Am I really as inadequate as I'm making out in this moment? Or as great as I'm making out in this moment? So it's questioning the assumptions and beliefs and looking deeper to see what's actually so in this moment. What's so helpful is bringing this quality in gives us space. It gives us a different perspective. It's like a stepping back. And because we're stepping back, we're less identified with the belief systems. There's just that bit of a pause. And because we're less identified with them, they, um, we can just see them as beliefs rather than who we actually are. And so there's a shift in the mind and the glue that Gil was talking about last night becomes less sticky. It's the, it, the glue is, is keeping us stuck in that particular viewpoint. And as we look more closely and we start to see how it actually is, the stickiness begins naturally to release and to clarify. And so whenever we question what's actually going on, it helps bring in that pause and it also brings in a strength and a stability. Because you can see, even if you sense that pause right now, what's actually going on in my body as I'm listening? And as, as I do that right now, there's a sense of, oh, a settling. And I realize, oh, there was a lot of energy here. And there's a little bit of an imbalance of my factors of awakening. There's, um, there's a lot of energy. And with that energy, there's joy, but there's not quite enough calm. And so there's just this little bit of leaning forward. I can sort of feel the bubbles of energy and, and, and happiness because I'm enjoying sharing what I'm saying. But this little voice comes in and says, a little bit more calm would be useful. Maybe you'd talk a bit more slowly. And then pause. And so it helps um, begin to balance in that way. The other thing that happens as the strength and the stability come 
is it starts revealing. There's a revealing quality that happens. We understand more of what's actually here. There's an uncovering and a loosening process. And then we're less pulled around by the thoughts and feelings. We're less pulled around by beliefs and there's more space and more choice, more ability not to follow a certain train of thought, to be able to just rest and say, oh, that's not so useful. That's not a useful direction. And this interested attention brings in discernment. So the mindfulness is the recognizing and then This brings in the ability to distinguish what's skillful, what's unskillful. So that's the wisdom and the understanding that brings in the possibility and the choice. So the mindfulness might notice thinking. Thinking is happening. Maybe you're thinking about, um, maybe you're having a wonderful fantasy. Thinking. Mindfulness simply notes that. Investigation says, is this going in a useful direction? Is this leading to awakening? No. It's very pleasant. It'll fill up the whole sit. <laughs> we'll pass quickly. But it's not leading to the truth. So that's just that extra piece that helps bring in just a deepening to the practice. Do I really want to follow that train of thought? So in our practice, we start to know when adjustments are needed, what they are and how to make them. And we, we, some of you who've been sitting for many years have a big toolbox of all the tools you've accumulated over your years of practice. And sometimes what can happen is we're in a difficult mind state and we start pulling out all the tools. They're all over the floor, so to speak. And when we're caught in thinking and figuring out mind, should I use this one or that one or what should I do? What would be right? But when we tune in a little bit more, discerning wisdom, discriminating wisdom takes over and it's that um, self-correcting intelligence. The Dalai Lama uses the word metacognitive intelligence to describe discerning um, mind because it begins to spontaneously reveal what would be useful to do right now. For those of you who are new to practice, as you're gradually acquiring more tools that we're sharing with you, um, some of the um, discerning wisdom is about being open to learning to use the tools. And so we're still um, exploring and experimenting, but it's working in a slightly different way. The more experience we have, the more fine-tuning happens with this quality. So, for example, mindfulness might have shown that you were sleepy this morning or this afternoon or whenever. Sleepiness is here. Investigation goes a little bit more deeply. What's going on? Oh, tiredness. Oh, boredom. Oh, fear. It just reveals what's underneath the sleepiness. And then it might arise what might need to happen. Maybe you suddenly notice you're standing up or there's, a, there's an intelligence that comes that's self-correcting, that guides you. There's like an intuiting what needs to happen next. So it's not a figuring out or a goal to gain more knowledge or to get to a certain state, 
but really a tuning in. So it's a very fine attunement, an alert, full presence that's right here and that's revealing. So the more we practice with this quality, the more it does it by itself. We don't have to do anything. It just, it just shows us the way. I was um, sitting along retreat at the Forest Refuge some years ago, and um, I was really enjoying working with the factors of awakening. And I'd really been practicing with calming. And so I was calm, and I got some concentration. But then I started to get very sleepy. And so sort of every sleep, every sit, I would fall asleep. I was very aware, and I was looking at the sleepiness. And um, then at one point, I sort of lost the discerning wisdom a little bit, and I was try- in fix-it mode. Should I, maybe I should open my eyes, maybe I should stand up, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. And as the mind, my, I saw my mind doing all that, showing me all these different ideas, my eyes started to fall, and I was just drifting off, when I just heard this little voice say, well, while you're deciding what to do, I think we'll go take a little nap. Wake me up when you've decided. <laughs> And so (laughs) discerning wisdom was just, you're trying to get it right. That's what's happening. And so when there's an agenda and a trying to get it right, sometimes the discerning wisdom will show that that's what's going on. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, sometimes it um, it really causes a block. There's a wanting in trying to get it right, and there's an aversion in fear of getting it wrong. And so we're caught in that. And the um, investigation shows us where we're caught. So a little bit more about how we develop, how we use this quality. With all the factors of awakening in the suttas, um, it's, um, in the instruction on how to develop them is first to notice, are they present or absent for all of them? Is there mindfulness here or not? And if, if the answer is no, then how do I, what do I do? How do I make them arise? So we, we will explore a bit. How do I make this quality arise? And then you might notice, oh, it's here a little bit. Well, how can I develop it further? What do I need to do to cultivate it more? So those are the steps to notice is it there or not. And not to judge if it's there or not, but just to notice there's a little bit, there's a lot, there's not. And what's it like? And so we, um, in the suttas, some of the ways of, dis- of developing um, investigation are to incline the mind towards being interested, paying attention. So you're inclining your mind to interest, looking more closely. And... Um, there's a whole list for each of them. And in um, investigation, it says that bodily cleanliness is really important. It says that for concentration, too. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe Gil will know and can tell us at some other point. But for those two factors of awakening, bodily cleanliness is very important. For some reason, not for the others. <laughs> and um, avoiding unwise Um, people is important for this one, and having good friends. 
And so um, we need support to, to develop these qualities. And then we start inquiring. And how do we inquire? The question why is not so useful because it tends to bring in um, the thinking mind, sort of more intellectual quality. What we want is a direct experience. So what is going on is more useful. What's the experience? What do I feel? What's happening? So we're looking more closely at the nature of the body and mind. We're looking at the direct experience more and more closely. Um, And it's like a positive feedback loop. Whenever we bring interest to a meditation object, whether it's the breath, the sensation, walking, thoughts, feeling, it actually becomes more interesting. Um, There's a lovely um, story I read a description of, of a woman who had become very ill and um, temporarily um, was unable to move very much. And so she was in bed for a long period of time. And a friend bought her a little snail in, a, in, a, in, a, in an, a, a terrarium or something and put the snail by her bed. And she would sit there and look at the snail and she saw more and more and more things about it. And it got more interesting. And she actually wrote a book about the snail. I can't remember what it's called. But she just, each time she looked, there was something new, some aspect that revealed itself. And so it's that looking um, with, the, with just an openness to possibility of what might reveal itself. So we look at the arising and passing. We start noticing, oh, things come and go. We explore our internal experience. And we explore externally in the world. The sights, the sounds, the things that we see. Um, when we're eating, people around us were aware of that and were aware of the impact that someone walking by might have. So there's a curiosity and a receptivity. And then we also inquire into our attitude. This part is really important. We're noticing, am I paying kind attention? Is there judging here? And if there's judging, what's the impact of that? What does that feel like? And the more frequently we give attention to the mind states in this way, we start to see what gets revealed is what's useful and what's not, what's beneficial. Then we can see, um, suppose we notice that there's a lot of wanting here. I'm really caught in wanting. I want a different mind state. (laughs) I want my practice to be clear. I want... (laughs) to have a more comfortable zafu or whatever it is that you happen to be wanting. I want a decaf latte, please. (laughs) Whatever it might be. Um, You start to look at what is it that's feeding that wanting? How is it that I'm keeping it going? What's happening? Mindfulness shows there's greed here. Investigation shows What am I doing to feed it? How am I keeping it going? The Buddha taught um, this phrase, the correct application of attention to things. So that really means keeping the correct things or the right things in mind. So that's paying attention to things that are beneficial. 
rather than paying attention to things that are leading to more suffering. Suppose you're caught in a really negative mind state, and this can happen. You get caught, it's like you're looking through um, negative glasses. You wake up in the morning and everything is disgusting. People are what they do are, and you're looking through this negative state. And so the thoughts have a negative story to them. They're creating a negative history. It's almost like you can feel this negative energy. And so if you apply investigation to that, you start to see how you're feeding it. Oh, I'm believing the thoughts. That's one way of feeding it. Oh, I'm resisting it. I don't like this mind state. I want another one. So the aversion to it is also feeding it. And it's really helpful to see that. So when we're using investigation wisely, we're keeping, quotes, the right things or beneficial things in awareness. We're cultivating kind attention rather than judgment. We're, we're, um, we're exploring with clarity. We're noticing when there's confusion. We're, we're, having, we're cultivating clear seeing so that it can dispel the confusion. So we start to explore what is beneficial to pay attention to. So the, in the example Gil was giving yesterday about the, about the bell ringer, um, when, you're whole, when you're so caught up in, I want this, or I don't want someone else to have it, you're paying attention to the thing, to the wanting. But investigation, as Gil was explaining, starts looking at the wanting and how that's causing discomfort. And then we start paying attention to what it's like to be open, what it's like to have more space, what quality that brings, what might it be like to let go. So we can see the difference between what it's like to hold on and what it's like to open and soften and let go a little. So the clear seeing is happening as a result of mindfulness and reflecting. So mindfulness and investigation together provide this kind of fine-tuning and a connection and an intimacy. They come together like that. In a practical way, when we're working, say, with the breath more, mindfulness might show, for example, this tension around the breath, I'm feeling very uncomfortable and tense around the breath. And investigation explores what's actually going on. And it might reveal this this compounded kind of thing that's a mixture of wanting the breath to be really easy and striving and then aversion to how it actually is. So there's sort of all these things mixed in together and investigation loosens them. And so then we start to relax more and the breath becomes easier. And so as I was saying, is this positive feedback loop. The more interest we bring, the more interesting it gets, the more it shows us. And then more energy comes. So one of the functions of investigation is that it, it provides energy. It brings in energy for our practice.
It's really helpful, um, though, to bring balance to this. When there's too little investigation, it's kind of obvious. There's confusion and doubt and dullness and boredom. So any time you notice that you're bored or feeling kind of blah or things are heavy, that's the time to bring in investigation, to bring in curiosity and interest, to actually actively um, recruit that factor. When there's too much, when we bring in too much, it gets sort of out of balance. We can get lost in thought or the mind can get agitated. So if you're restless already and feeling a little bit agitated, that's not a useful time to bring in more investigation. What you want then is more calming. And so um, so it's very helpful to notice how those two balance each other and to notice when it's useful and when it brings more agitation. And you don't need to worry about overusing investigation and it leading to too much thought because it's self-correcting. Mindfulness will simply show, oh, I'm agitated. Oh, now I'm just completely thinking all over the place. And I'm trying too hard. And now, or maybe you've gotten all excited (laughs) Um, and the energy is just everywhere. So it will self-correct. But it's helpful to notice what it is that's happening. What's the energy like in my body? Is there restlessness or is there um, sleepiness? And so that can help us bring in a wise balance. And we get increasingly skillful at this fine-tuning the more we practice. And one of the things that um, I find very helpful is that it's okay to make mistakes. Sometimes one of the things that can um, really block this self-correcting intelligence is having to get it right or being afraid of getting it wrong. We get caught in those two things. There's um, a lovely example in one of um, Rachel Naomi Ruman's books um, about the first time the Concorde flew across the Atlantic and there were some VIPs on board and they were taken to um, the engine room and of course there was no no one, no pilot there. It was all done by computer. And so some of them were a bit nervous. And one of them noticed that there was this whirring and the computers were making this noise all the time. And he said, what is that? And they said, well, every time the plane's a bit off course, the computers do a correction. Well, how often does that happen? Oh, it's about 90% of the time. And then, are we really going to get to Paris? <laughs> oh, yes. And of course they did. And so... Um, it was fine for the computer to keep making mistakes 90% of the time and just automatically self-correct and get there. But what happens when we make mistakes is we get upset about it. But if we could have that same attitude, oh, I'm off course, self-correct, continue, rather than add, I shouldn't be, and you know, the ego gets into a fight you know, with some part of us, you're off course again, you're bad, you know, or you have to get it right, or whatever it is. But simply, we're off course, self-correct, continue. So it's helpful when we can hold it with that kind of more softness and allowing that we are going to go off course. 
maybe we'll be a bit overindulgent or maybe we'll get a little bit too agitated and gradually gradually it comes into tune again it's not a big deal it's simply exploring and discovering what works for me at this particular time and so there it gets as as the as all the different factors of awakening develop and we be, become more and more um, towards equanimity, the fine-tuning gets deeper and deeper. And we'll be talking about that as the days go on, how powerful this quality is as each of the other factors help it strengthen and get deeper and brighter. So I'd like to talk a little bit too about the ways we can use investigation. And one of them that's really helpful is whenever there's physical or emotional distress, when we're caught in some difficult mind state or some unpleasant um, arising or some particular pattern that's really difficult for us. And we can sort of question, do I want to keep acting out the same pattern over and over? And usually the answer is no, but somehow we're caught again. And many of you are familiar with the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. And um, I still find it very useful. And we can, it's really, all it is really is mindfulness plus investigation. So the R is the recognition, mindfulness, the knowing. The A is that allowing that's also a little bit part of mindfulness, allowing how it actually is. I is the investigation. And then N is that sense of not identifying that Gil was talking about last night. So we recognize mindfully what's actually happening. Maybe there's some fear or judgment or hurt or whatever it is that's here. And then the A, I also like to use um, at A is for attitude. (laughs) Am I... Am I allowing it or am I resisting it? So it includes resistance. It's knowing what the attitude is. Am I accepting or resisting how things are? And again, the investigation isn't a cognitive thing. It's a getting in touch with the felt sense. It's more of an invitation to drop in a little more deeply. What's actually happening here? And we bring the kindness in that we've been talking about throughout the kind attention. Because when there's that little bit of gentleness there, what's really happening is more likely to reveal itself. If there's any edge of judging or harshness, then we can't always see clearly because it doesn't feel safe to allow the deeper layers to be seen. So then when when we see more clearly, then the identification starts to shift and we're back in wholeness. There's a more natural awareness. So it's as though the rain dissolves the identification. And instead of being the separate self that's caught in some difficult mind state, um, there's more a sense of wholeness. The rain dissolves the separation and the stuck place. So we recognize, we notice our attitude, we investigate what's going on, What's the experience right now? And then we start to see 
exactly what's happening. And we don't have to, the non-identifying is not taking it to be me, mine, permanent. And we don't have to do that. It happens naturally as a result of the investigation and the allowing. Sometimes just clearly recognizing the state that's here is enough. It dissolves and we can let go. We don't need to inquire any further. And some of you have already described that. Oh, I saw that's what I was doing. And as soon as there was the seeing of it, we understood and it released. But sometimes we're really caught. We're really stuck in some emotional or physical or combination of everything storm. And investigation helps clarify what actually is going on. Because often when we're in one of those storms, we're confused. We can't figure out, what is it? How am I stuck? What's going on? And so it's the, the discernment helps us see, oh, there's some fear here, and there's some sadness um, underneath all this anger and frustration. That's what's going on. Oh, and underneath that, um, there's, there's just this place of, um, of insecurity. So we see deeper and deeper. Oh, and then underneath that, there's the fear of not being seen or of being bad. You know, so we, all these layers start to separate out. And then, because we can see clearly, we feel more in alignment with how it is. We're not fighting it anymore. And when we're in alignment with, what, with how it is, um, the resistance decreases and it starts to soften, and there's more compassion comes in. Oh, this is how it is. It's really hard right now. I'm sad, or I'm afraid, or whatever it is. And it starts to shift. It's not this, there's, um, I'm the sad one. It's just sadness is here, or fear is here. So as I was saying with the negativity, that negativity can really also be something that blocks our practice. Um, Earlier this year, um, for whatever reason, I don't know, I had a lot of negativity coming up. I was feeling grumpy a lot of the time, and I was feeling irritable and self-critical, and a lot of things I was looking at through, I don't like this, I don't want that. And... It's not my usual state, and it was very unpleasant. And so what helped was really sitting with it and allowing it to be the way it was. So that's the, the recognizing and allowing it. And then as I investigated, starting to see what was feeding it. One of the things that was feeding it was I was, I was believing the stories about it. And another thing was that I had an aversion to being this way. There was this sort of sense, I shouldn't be like this. My practice should be better than this. I shouldn't get stuck like this. And of course, seeing that was very helpful because that was what was keeping me stuck. As soon as I could allow it, this is just a moment of negativity in my life. That's all. Then it began to shift. And there began to be some movement of it moving through the body rather than, I shouldn't be this way. And sometimes when we sit, we can notice we get that message. Things shouldn't be the way they are. <laughs> I want them to be different. I don't want to be 
my body to be aging. I don't mind getting older, but I don't want my body to be doing what it's doing. (laughs) Give me a different body or a body that doesn't fall apart in this particular way. Um, And so, or I don't want my mind to be doing what it's doing. Um, I was sitting here earlier and somewhere in the sort of vagaries of me, my, my mind was this wonderful example that I wanted to share with you that was funny and entertaining and really clear. And would it come? No. And so I noticed this wanting it. And then I, I noticed this fear arise of, oh, my brain is falling apart. <laughs> Cognitive decline is coming. <laughs> and, um, and then there's just the, the bare experience of, this is not returning right now. <laughs> and um, can that be okay? And then it dissolving. And so it's being able to be okay with the way things actually are. So the investigation shows us how they are, and it also shows us when we resist the way they are and how that causes suffering. And, so it's, and it also then brings compassion, and also it brings humor. Um, because... Resisting the way things are is pointless. And judging ourselves for doing it is also pointless. (laughs) And so that brings some compassion. And sometimes what we find underneath is sadness or grief, things that we haven't allowed ourselves to feel. Sometimes it can be a very deep grief that we've never allowed. And gradually, if we can gently investigate not it's not an archaeological dig <laughs> it's an allowing of an unfolding and because we're allowing the unfolding then there's the capacity to, to hold it we're not trying to push or force anything sometimes there's dissatisfaction some of us who've been sitting for some years we can come to a retreat and we're dissatisfied with our practice. I'm sure there are some of you who've experienced that. I want it to, again, wanting it to be different. What's underneath the dissatisfaction? The investigation reveals that, shows us where we're stuck. And we really start to see the conditioned aspect of experience we start to see how this mind state is arising due to certain causes and conditions. It got triggered, that's all. It got triggered by something. And now it's here. And it will leave due to certain causes and conditions. And things are coming and going due to these causes and conditions. And some, and that many of which are not under our control. And it's when we think that we should be able to be, do it differently, that we get caught. And that too is a mind state that's conditioned. We can notice the conditioned mind state of getting it right that occurs. And we can just let it come and let it go. That's all it is. It's a mind state. And investigation shows us that it actually doesn't have any substance. All the thoughts that you had at the last sitting have gone. They might recur in a different form, but they're actually gone. The ideas about yourself that you were having at lunchtime are gone. And that happens moment by moment. 
And often what happens is something arises and boom, we, we latch onto that. This is what we're aware of. And what's helpful with investigation is not to, um, to judge that, but sometimes to say, oh, I'm aware of this stuck, unpleasant place, and what else am I aware of? So there's an opening and an including. What else am I aware of brings more space. There's not just this tight, contracted, hopeless place. There's, oh, there's all this other possibility. So it's as though there were many things in a room and your mind just latched on one and that was the only thing you saw in the room and the room became about that. And then it's what else am I aware of in this space? So these, these just gentle reflections of what am I aware of? What else am I aware of? What else am I aware of? Are so helpful. So I'm aware of all the things that I want to share. <laughs> and discerning wisdom is, is um, being open to not having to get it right <laughs> and noticing that. So sometimes we use um, investigation in a really practical way um, to look through the Buddhist perspective, for example, of the Four Noble Truths which many of you are familiar with, but really, for those of you who are not, it's using investigation to notice, oh, there's some suffering here. Something is unpleasant and wrong. We're noticing that. And then we start seeing where it is, that's the suffering, where it, where it is, what is it that's happening that's causing it? And through doing that, there's a possibility of loosening and being open to letting it go, to it ending. So we just see that. We see that separate out. So I'm caught. Where am I holding on? Is it possible in this moment to let it go? What does it feel like to let go? Am I looking for something particular? Am I attached to an agenda? What is it? Can I let it go? So it's helpful to really pay attention in this gentle, soft way to reveal what am I aware of moment by moment. And so we can still, if we're beginning our practice, be with the breath, be with the body, and let the very details of the breath reveal themselves, become intimate with the sensations of breathing. All there is to be known about the sensations of the breath in the body. And as we do that, it brings in energy and it starts to feel pleasant. And gradually, the seven factors of awakening are unfolding. And if we're with the body, the same thing. Everything there is to know about these sensations. And when we notice we're caught in some mind state, 
releasing the breath for a moment. What's happening here? What, what, what is it that's going on? Am I wanting something? Am I wanting something to stop? Am I pushing away? Am I caught in doubt? Am I caught in restlessness and agitation? And so we start to see how these different qualities, um, the ones that we call the hindrances, obscure, and how, by feeding the factor of awakening, they can release and dissolve. And how balance comes about. And so there's a delight that comes with that as we start to experience the potential to be free of not being so stuck, sticky, and so caught. And so um, my wish for you is that your jewel, your precious jewel of investigation, shines more and more brightly and that you can see clearly and it reveals more and more clearly um, the actual experience of what you are that's free from all these sticky, contracted places. And just the last piece um, to say is, for me, what's been so powerful about this is by looking more and more closely at the, the ways I take myself to be, the structures, I start to see that that's what they are. I've built this image of myself. Again, and I was talking to Shada earlier, I had this sense of a pack of cards. All I am is this pack of cards, and they might all fall down, and that's really scary. Whoa! And I have to do it right all the time to keep the cards standing up. You know how you make a stack of cards, it's kind of, you know, the foundation goes, you're gone. And so then it was like, oh, what might it be like? It's the curiosity if the cards fall down if the cards dissolve. And my experiences of, oh, wow, there's a sense of freedom. The cards dissolve, and what's left is bright awareness. What can happen so often, we talked about this in one of the interviews, is that we think that if the cards all fall down, that's what it feels like, that somehow we'll die. It's like there's, a, there's an intuitive um, physical um, danger. It's sort of that needs the security to hold on. A survival instinct that sort of triggers that hindbrain adrenaline surge of if this all falls down, I'm dead. (laughs) That's what the ego thinks. But the movement that the factors of awakening are taking us to as we step in this river is to dissolve that, to let it dissolve, and then we become part of the flow of the river. And so even though the intuitive, there's an intuitive um, sort of hindbrain fear, there's also an intuitive trust that knows it's okay. It's okay if they fall down. You won't disappear. And so just the encouragement to trust and to just keep letting go little by little, not as a doing, but as a just gently step-by-step seeing what's true for you, moment by moment. So I'd like to end there with just the encouragement to rest in this moment and see what's true for you 
right now. So thank you for your kind attention. And I always have one last thing that wants to come out, so I'm allowing it out. (laughs) And that's that whether you're having an easy moment or a difficult moment right now, to allow it to be held in kindness and to just trust that there isn't a right way to be. There's just being and to have that be held in love. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.